do think that we will learn from this. We had how many centuries to learn from a lot of our mistakes and how many decades of certain people in office to correct it. The same way this pushed white people in Europe, the same way it pushed Muslims in Europe, is the same way I'm seeing it pushing white people mm -hmm. in America to extremism. How do we bridge the gap? Where do we, how do we reconcile what's happening? Welcome to the Politicals Podcast. We are your hosts, Mary Mikira and Nina Belforte. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the insurrection at the Capitol building on January 6th in Washington, D.C. Today we have Lev Yorditsky joining us as a guest. Lev has his master's in Middle Eastern studies with a focus on terrorism, conflict, and interregional relations, and a bachelor's in economics. Lev has extensive experience in geopolitical risk and launched the Global Jihadist Division in both Europe and the Americas. During these years, he focused his research on geopolitical issues, including terrorism, armed conflict, political instability, and social issues. Currently, Lev works as a head of intelligence for a Luxembourg-based company that provides in-depth due diligence reports for financial institutions throughout Europe. Hi, Lev. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. To start things off, can you tell us what extremist groups you have experienced studying, tracking, and defining? Yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the, just because I'll say a lot of groups that some listeners and just people in general might have an issue with calling extremists. So okay. I'm going to circumvent that by just not defining extremists. But essentially, I would call it like any um, group that has like transnational or irredentist groups, I guess I forgot the term for it. But essentially, like uh, in Africa, there was a lot of, um, and in the Middle East, there's a lot of Islamic terrorist groups. So you know, a lot of them were connected to ISIS, a lot of them were connected to Al-Qaeda. Um, then there was a lot of different splits that made their own kind of locally oriented Islamist groups. So um, I would say, at least during my professional life, um, the majority of my um, research, at least at first, was on Islamic militant groups um, throughout everywhere in, you know, like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, Mauritania, mm -hmm. places like that. And also in the Middle East, the obvious ones, these kind of groups exist. Uh, but I specialize in the Levant um, and also including Turkey and Iran. So uh, because of that, there was a ton of um, different Kurdish groups, desires for freedom or greater autonomy, depending on which country they were based in. So Kurdish ones were really big. And on top of um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, because a big part of my focus was also um, Iraq. That's one of the countries I wrote my thesis on. Um, a lot of the groups that I studied were Shiite militant groups. So this included Hezbollah, it included um, a lot of the different factions of the popular mobilization units in Iraq um, during uh, the government's fight against ISIS. So, you know, it depends how you view that, if they're extremists or if they're, you know, righteous militia groups, whatever. Um, and also in, in Africa, jumping back to there, there was a lot of um, uh, militant groups that again, wanted their region of their country to, to be independent, to break away from the, their particular country, um, or to just get um, a fairer share of uh, revenue that was generated from their region. So for those uh, that are familiar with uh, Nigeria, for instance, um, in the oil-rich Niger Delta, there was plenty of different groups there that were fighting the government and flight fighting any um, corporations that are operating there. Uh, but then okay. as, as, as things started getting um, crazier in Europe and there was the, the trend of Islamic militancy there, I obviously tracked them there. And this included lone wolves uh, groups and the more established um, uh, terror cells. But also that's when I started getting into right wing extremist groups um, in Europe. Most of them were really small 
you know, like very local, like somewhere in Serbia where there was a right wing kind of white supremacist group there. And there was a bunch in Italy. And then obviously Greece had smaller ones, but also bigger ones that were in the government and so on and so forth. So, yeah, when in relation to um, specifically these white supremacist groups that you have more recently looked at, given your background, can you, for our listeners, um, sort of describe from your perspective how you would define and label these extremist groups and also note just how in general they're formed and they come together? Sure. So generally speaking, just to, to give a, a very loose definition, Hezbollah had included um, a lot of the different factions of the popular mobilization units in Iraq during uh, the government's fight against ISIS. So, you know, depends how you view that, if they're extremists or if they're, you know, righteous militia. The way I would define an extremist group in any case is someone who's going to use usually violent measures in order to change something in their country or in whatever jurisdiction that is relevant to them. Um, so if you're willing to use violence to intimidate government officials or intimidate the public uh in order to change anything okay so anyone who's willing to use violence for toward towards their political goals is an extremist in, in in the way that i would look at it um and the way their form is actually interesting um generally speaking um most extremist groups or people who gravitate towards extremism it's it's due to something from the other side so most extremist groups i saw in europe um started in response to what they saw as a demographic shift in Europe towards uh, more Muslims and um, mm-hmm. also fear from, you know, attacks that were happening throughout Europe at the time. There was like beheadings, there was bombings in Europe. So a lot of these groups, they generate traction by witnessing extremism from the other side and extremist views from the other side, and just a general weakening of, you know, their demographics position in, in their continent or in their country. That makes complete okay. sense. So for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. Exactly. Yeah. Would you define the January 6th riot as an extremist event? Yeah, yeah, I certainly would. Just to be a bit nuanced here, would I describe the events that happen as um, extremists or the people who are involved in the in the actions right. in that particular building as extremists? Sure. Was every protester there or was the majority of the protests an extremist movement? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I know people who partook in it. I know adult friends of mine, meaning like grandparents and uh, parents who have no inclination towards violence at all and definitely don't want a revolution in any case, just partaking in it because they want to show support for Trump. And I would venture to guess that the absolute majority of people were that. So um, the protest itself, I wouldn't call extremists, but those who did those actions to take over the building were extremists for sure. Okay. Do you think it's a fair assessment to say that January 6th began as a protest, escalated as a riot, and then led itself into being an insurrection? It's a good question. Um, how do you define insurrection, firstly? I would define an insurrection as an attempt to overthrow or overpower um, the government. Okay. So if your intention is to be aggressive, especially if you're trying to overtake a federal building and take hostages, if that's your intent, that I would certainly define that 
as an insurrection. I would also add to that a refusal to obey any kind of order, right? Because mm-hmm. like it's one thing to throw a brick through a window, but if you there is a deliberate intent on top of that to circumvent any kind of order that's been established, whether that's the National Guard or the local police department, right. or whatever. Um, to me, that that kind of ties and differentiates, you know, an insurrection from typical riots with agitators right and so i would i would say that the way that you um first the definition is fine and i think that the way that um you describe the turn of events as my guess just from so again like uh this is less based on the details in this particular event as uh and more in comparison with the patterns i've seen in almost every single event that took place like this elsewhere in the world right and let's say hypothetically, uh, you have a hundred people or whatever, a thousand people, mm-hmm. um, all going to a protest and you're going to have okay. a portion of those people who have a crazy plan to take mm-hmm. over something there. And a lot of times I've seen that they actually don't go through with it because the circumstances just aren't there. So the same thing in protest. So I think in this case, out of this thousand X percentage, a small of them percentage of them discussed amongst each other to take over the building. I think um the the rest of them during the riot during the protest you kind of feed off each other everyone's encouraging each other to get crazier and crazier and more aggressive and when you're in front of such a sensitive building and you see it as like the you know the basis of power of your rivals and you don't see any pushback any strong enough pushback from the military or from the police and you see that you're over you can overpower them then some people might be encouraged to do it even before there might have been people there and i assume there were that had no intention of doing that and they might have had the idea even before the people who actually wanted to or came there with the intention to take over the building moved in with it. So basically, I think a portion of the protesters had the intention from the beginning. Another portion of them just kind of got riled up and uh, decided to go for it. And then others got dra- probably got dragged into it and said, holy shit, we're taking over the building. Let's do this. Yala, let's go and, uh, right. and break in with all with all these people. That's my guess of how the events probably transpired. And if you, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I, I'm actually really curious to have your perspective on you know given the um, differences of perspective, maybe going into what was originally designed as a protest or a rally. You know, when you look at the composition of people that make up what we are now labeling as rioters. Mm-hmm. Uh, business owners, people who were unemployed, law enforcement. Um, and then, of course, you had, you know, neo-Nazis, yeah. right? You had the guy wearing the Auschwitz sweater, um, incredibly offensive. Obviously, there was a motivation there. Um, but c- can you, from your perspective, talk through these kinds of groups where you've got a massive cross-section and why it's significant that there is such a cross-section of people? Or is it significant that there's a cross-section what do you what do you mean by cross-section like the fact that there's such a range of people from like correct okay that's a good question you mean you mean in the in the pro-trump camp in general or in the protests all of the above really but especially when we're looking at whether or not because a big question right now here right is like how we all want to label this Mm -hmm. in the u.s right yeah um especially because we had a government building that was uh quite frankly very easy to infiltrate yeah um and there are a lot of questions around that a lot of questions we don't have answers to yet Mm -hmm. so and i think you know natural human tendency is we want to define and label things to explain yeah and so um i'm just curious from you know from your experience 
tracking, observing um, types of groups around the world, whether we label them as extremists or right wing or um, terrorists, when you have a large body of people that come together and um, a sizable percentage go into a building, possibly with the intent to harm government officials, the fact that there was such a diverse group socioeconomically seems pre- to start to start out seems pretty significant, but, but I don't know. So I'm just curious, you know, given that there is such a range of people that attended this event that ultimately resulted in the January 6th outcome, is yeah. that significant? Do you think, um, and emboldening certain groups within that rally or is it, is it insignificant? It's actually a very, very good question you're asking. And at first I would say it's insignificant, but I would say it's insignificant for me just because it's actually just a very normal thing. And because you're asking it, I think that means that most likely for a lot of people, it's, it's not very obvious as to me, it might be obvious that um, in any group and the most extremist of groups, you have a very wide range of um, uh, supporters. And the reason I think it's significant is that, and I don't think this is what would happen because I'm very pessimistic and cynical about people's ability to self-reflect. <laughs> and um, right. I, I think I think most people don't want to, it's more comfortable to just live in, in the beliefs that you have. And like people don't right. want to reflect on the misgivings of their own group and and whatever. But from my experience, what, what's, what's good and what I took um, away personally from tracking extremist groups that especially ones they hated me, because mind you, I'm, I'm Jewish, I live in Israel. Um, I, I literally had to read all the conversations or conversation between different terrorist groups who oftentimes do talk about literally killing, you know, my people and like blowing up my city and things like that. Right. And, um, and if you are honest with yourself in as in like kind of an academic person, then you'll be able to see that, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, as I guess, as they say that, um, you could understand the other side. And I'm not saying to be sympathetic. I don't believe in that. I believe in just getting as a very brief aside. I'm going to give a quick example. Um, If I was in Gaza, the chance that, and I think Mm -hmm. most Israelis, if they were in Gaza, the chance that they would join Hamas is about as likely, almost 100%, as any other person that would join Hamas from Gaza because of the circumstances there. That doesn't mean I sympathize with them. And at the same time, I bet if those people from Gaza who end up joining Hamas were living in Israel and dealing with the things that we have to deal with here, they would join the Israeli Defense Force to eradicate the threat that you face from Gaza. So my point is that that's not a very comfortable thing for a lot of people to think about because in our world, you have to villainize your rival or else you're not justified mm-hmm. to hurt them. You can't, you can't right. um, go into, it's hard to go into battle if you think that the other side is sweet. And for me yeah, personally, right. it's not, but I, for most people it is. And that's understandable, it's human. So you have to start attacking everything. Like, ah, well, look how they treat women. We'll look how they treat gays. Like it's weird to hear about. For instance, my conservative Trump supporting friends, when they would, um, you know, put down a, another country, oftentimes a Muslim country, they will talk about how the Muslims treat their gays and their women. And I'm like, well, since since when the hell did you become the righteous defender of gay rights? In you're a fucking conservative. When yeah. did you? I'm sorry for my language, but like, when did you become <laughs> the, defend, the defender of, of women and gay rights in 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 Saudi Arabia? What do you care? But we do care we want to put someone down. So anyway, I say that just to say that people don't want to take lessons, and I think you should take lessons from seeing some uh, uncomfortable things from your rival 
and look internally and see mm -hmm. how how is the same with in your own camp and this is me um when we talk when you talk about um the range of people participating in these protests it should open the mind of um most uh, of the of biden supporters and most liberals and the thing with today's day and age is that uh you probably are exposed to different um posts and media than i am and vice versa because of you know our friend groups so my friends on the left and my friends on the right see very different pieces of information. So mm -hmm. we on on the right, you might have a different view of uh, events from BLM movements than people on the left. And that's where a lot of arguments happen. You're, the basic data is is completely different. So what what should be taken away from this is that Trump supporters are not a bunch of neo-Nazi rednecks. There's that one guy. And like, you know, think about the fact that of all the pictures, you have like four of like people with like clear neo-Nazi agendas. like one guy with an Auschwitz shirt and as a Jew, obviously I hate that. The media keeps showing that one guy or like the handful of people. And you notice if you, if you watch right. media if, and there's a very, I, I wish I can find it. There was a great Italian photojournalist who actually did a dissertation on understanding media and what it really means by looking at the photos, right? Like if you see the same photo, they're Absolutely. trying to make an agenda, uh, a narrative. Okay, there's a bunch of neo-Nazis. Okay, then why is there only one guy with an Auschwitz shirt or three or four out of tens of thousands? Mm -hmm. So... What I want is that um, people realize that, like, no, not all Trump supporters are rednecks. Um, not all Trump supporters are, like, uneducated people. In fact, if I take the people at the highest education levels that I know, they tend to be Trump supporters. And it's not because most of my friends are Trump supporters. Um, it's, it's not like that. And I think that you can also take away from this that in any group of people, um, and by the way, including Muslim extremists, um, there is, you know, the PhDs, there is doctors, there is... Uh, engineers there's so many different groups of people it's not all you know people from the village um, um who were like raised in islamic extremism you know some of the biggest um drivers of islamic extremism ever in this world were secular until their 40s or their 30s or or whatever else what you see is that most trump supporters aren't extreme and most trump supporters aren't just a bunch of rednecks and most um, you know, Trump supporters aren't a bunch of neo-Nazis with zero education from a village who all they care about is their guns and they hate blacks. In fact, you see blacks there and you see gays there and you see Mexicans there and Latinos of other sorts. And the same way, mm -hmm. you know, someone should realize that it's, it's the same in, in, in all the BLM protests, just the same, that you have a range of educated people who just want, you know, um, to address institutionalized racism. And then you have people who just want to break into stores. You know what I mean? And like take things and like uh, and 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 some people who don't want to hurt anyone. You have the whole range in any single protest. You're going to have the dignified, righteous people who are educated and just have a di different political point of view than than someone else. And then there's going to be the the people who have violence on their mind. And that's kind of their agenda in the in, the, in, in general life. And then you're going to have people who are just a bit angry and did some violent acts because they got riled up. You know what I mean? I think that's fair. I think, you know, there's there's some there's certainly something to be said with political ideologies. Um, but, you know, it, there's a difference between peacefully protesting, regardless of where you lie on the spectrum, whether you're a liberal or conservative, if you find yourself in the middle, if you're an extremist on both ends, however that looks like, you have the right to exercise uh, your First Amendment rights. That's protected. But, you know, there are those people you had mentioned who um, don't necessarily care about the cause so much and mostly care about uh, the amount of destruction that they can um, that they can have and really capitalize 
on what's going on. Especially but. in the United States, you know, we are seeing a pretty dramatic rise data-wise. I mean, if we look into the Department of Homeland Security, FBI, right. Department of Justice, right? Like right-wing and beyond, beyond that, uh, white supremacy, neo-Nazism, like those extremist groups are on the rise in the United States. I'm really curious, um, you know, given your experience, again tracking these individuals and this is a little bit of a a detour real quick have you seen any examples of extremists within groups whether or not they relate to the ones that i'm I'm talking about specifically that have been reintegrated into the larger body politic afterwards yeah for sure but you mean like um because the larger body politic becomes more violent or because these people decided um, that the only way for me to actually make the changes I want to is not by being part of this, you know, mini um, neo-Nazi group, but actually being part of government. The the latter. Uh, yeah, for sure, it definitely happens. Um, I can't give examples with names right now, but I've seen it in in Greece, Golden Dawn. I think it was, you know, some of the people who made up that party, which I think I'm making up numbers, but I think they got maybe fifteen percent <laughs> of uh, parliament at one point, so they were pretty powerful. Um, you know, some of people who became pretty significant in their party were in the past arrested for you know violent actions for their cause and uh, in the muslim world 100 percent, this happens all the time you know i don't know how much you want to compare it to the muslim world just because in a country like iraq where it's kind of chaotic in the first place it's not hard to have a political party also be a militia group i mean that's right that's like how right. it is in hezbollah so like if you at one point are a terrorist uh, but your terrorist group is also connect, connected to politics that's just, we call it a terrorist group, they would call it a paramilitary organization with a political party attached to it. So yes, it, it happens very frequently where someone was once an extremist, um, even in trouble with the law for being extremist, and then um, over time realizes, you know what, I still have the same values, but and I do care mm-hmm. about them, but I want to actually make a change in order to do so, I need to join politics. So it certainly happens. Can you explain some of the or can you draw comparisons, given your experiences, uh, between right-wing extremism and, uh, you know, religious extremism? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, again, generally speaking, everyone, not everyone, but there's uh, really a handful of reasons that people join. Um, I think there's okay. a book I read some years ago about uh, the motivations of people joining ISIS, and it was based on the profiles of those who joined, and you saw that there was about six different causes and a lot of them had nothing to do with Islam at all. Um, so I would say the, to start with the overlapping is I would say, um, person that's motivated to join an extremist group where they're putting their life at risk, not just, you know, physical life, but also their, their careers and their futures has to believe in the cause, which means that usually they believe that there's like, uh, a, Hey, it's something bigger than them one way or the other. And that, that's worth dying for. Okay. Um, or you have to believe that it's not just bigger than you on a philosophical level, that your life is at risk or your country's life is at risk because of something that you see. Be it like, I would say that a lot of the right wing, if you're actually a right wing extremist, and just to make the distinction clear, like, I'm not talking about Trump supporters, I'm talking about like right wing extremists. And some of them, by the yeah, just right far right, because yeah. a, lot of, a lot of them are, a lot of uh, right wing extremists, don't like Trump either, by the way, but um, you would believe in that. You would believe in that uh, the, the thing that you hold near and dear, be it the nation, your country, is that threat by something 
I would say that that, that's a really um, common motivation. And the way you get there is, um, again, usually how you said earlier that, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So in Europe, um, the attacks pushed people to join um, right-wing extremist groups because they felt that like, oh my God, we're actually, the Muslims are coming and they're blowing things up. And then when right-wing extremist groups acted and, you know, did something offensive in a Muslim, you know, community or hurt someone in Muslim community, then Muslims in that community or other Muslims in Europe are like, oh my God, the right-wing extremists are on the rise. Look at them. They burnt down this mosque or they beat up this Muslim girl on the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, now I understand why right. people are joining. So I'm going to join my brothers in uh, these groups. So, um, so, so right. those are two things that I see a lot um, common across, across the board. Again, just, mm-hmm. just belief. And oftentimes, like once you open your mind a little bit, then you can find the wrong things. Like if you want to believe for a moment that, you know, America is under attack by from immigrants and from the lot of the perspective of Trump supporters, like full on commies and people who want to take away the rights of white people to be white. And by the way, also, I think right. one thing I wasn't going to say earlier, but I do think it's important to note is narrative against a certain people really drives people to uh, believe they're under threat. So in the public sphere, when government officials in Europe um, talk about Islamic militancy and start talking about Muslims as an other Muslims who otherwise um, a lot of times mm-hmm. might feel like, hey, I'm German. You know, I went to school in Germany. I'm an engineer in Germany. But then the government is like, what do we do right. about the Muslim issue? How would you feel, uh, you know, Mary, if someone said, what do we what do we do about the African immigrants? Like, you feel like you're other. Like, what the hell? I come from or like if I'm, I'm Jewish. If I was living in America still and people were to say, what do we do about the Jewish right. issue? Then that pushes you like, hold on. What's the Jewish issue? So for whites in Europe, um, and I'd say especially whites in America, they feel that they're being othered which is weird for whites in america to feel othered and you can hear it um that right i'm sure you guys have ran into it in your circles that um the word the word white supremacy is being tossed around a lot being white is being is you Mm -hmm. you feel that um you're kind of under a light attack and i don't really identify as white anyway nor do i really live in america nor do i really care one way or the other how people describe me i'm i'm kind of indifferent but hearing the way that people say white as a negative thing like Oh, you're, you're a straight white male, so you don't get it. Or yeah, we're tired of hearing just white opinions or like, it seems like white has become a negative term that you can't say about black people. You can't say, I don't want to hear the opinion of an uneducated black man. That sounds rude as hell, but whites in America are starting to hear this all the time being tossed around. Oh, he's just a white supremacist or like the old white person party or yeah, just like another Karen. Like even I hear the word Karen being thrown about every Mm -hmm. old white lady and like it's being treated as a negative, um, uh, uncool a what do you call it, provincial kind of person and the same way this pushed white people in europe the same way it pushed muslims in europe is the same way i'm seeing it pushing white people mm-hmm. in america to extremism because they feel under yeah attack. i have sure. two questions to that actually um so my first one is i understand where you're coming from with that the way that language and culture has sort of shifted it's near impossible unless you are that person to really um fully understand where people are coming from. And I think for me, if a gay person were to say, but you don't get it because you're straight. Personally, I'm not offended Um, because yeah, you're right. I can be empathetic all I want, but there's so many blind spots that I have that I cannot cure. Um, I can certainly try, but there's so much that you don't think Mm -hmm. about if you're straight, right? Like holding your partner's hand when you're walking down the street, um, that 
to some people is a political choice. There's so many different things that they have to overthink about. Mm -hmm. It's like being black, you know, you can't hide the color of your skin. So it's like, okay, well, when I'm shopping, I need to be X amount of distant away from the clothing rack because they're going to think I'm stealing. Um, all of these things that people outside of that group do not have to think about. And it's important to call out that level of privilege, in my view, in order for people to recognize, you know what, I actually do have a lot of blind spots. Or if somebody were to say you're able-bodied, there's so much that you don't see or know. You're right. That is, to me, that's not offensive because I'm well aware of the fact of what I know and what I don't know. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So I think it's important to call these things out socially so we can break down those systemic barriers that currently exist, um, in my view. But I totally understand where you're coming from with, you know, people really siding with this person hears me, this individual gets what I'm saying. I feel under attack as a white man um, because they're not used to that level of criticism, unlike yeah. people outside of that group. Um, but when you're trying to call out, we're just trying to call out privilege, um, then then people are offended and they get extreme. Um, so that's one 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 point that I had there. And, and you know, you did bring up something very, very uh, key, I think, in this entire discussion. Given your expertise, what are the parameters of incitement and recruitment within extremism? Because as you mentioned before, the way the media can frame certain things, the way that uh, how individuals can send out a tweet and people understand mm -hmm. it's a dog whistle, um, what, are, what are those parameters? I'm happy to answer that. I want to respond, though, to your first point. Um, so... Okay. There's an extent where that to that to which that's true, but I'm going to show you what I believe is the the flaw there. The fir the first thing I want to say, just to clarify, it's not just like in in a conversation where okay. I I personally wouldn't argue with a gay person's experience and be upset if he told me, well, you don't get it because you're not gay, um, because that's legit. Um, but um, just being a Trump supporter will get you the side eye of he's a Nazi or he's a white supremacist, and I think a lot of people believe that. And that is really, yeah. I'll give you something I want to tell you that uh, Obama for a long time, I don't know if it's true. I never, I didn't listen to every single speech of his, but he didn't want to call out Islamic extremism as Islamic extremism. And a lot of people were very upset about that. Right. I, on the other hand, don't know if he mm -hmm. did this for a policy reason, but I think in general, it's smart to um, not call it that sometimes, although it is that, and I've used that term a lot, but I'm not a politician. And I think if you're a politician, it might be smart not to do that because um, you're you're gonna you're gonna create a bigger a bigger problem. You're inciting, you're inciting people. people. So I think a lot yeah. of my friends who are who are Trump supporters, and even by the way, black friends of mine who are Trump supporters, might be called you know racist or right. white, and it means that you're not listening. The point about uh, recognizing your privilege, there's extent to that which that's true, but then we wouldn't ever have a conversation. And a lot of people who are part of a group also are biased meaning that if 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 of course everyone's biased every human being on the planet but what i mean is to biased, their own experience again there's merit to it because you have a different experience and i have a different experience but don't silence my opinion because of that and on top of that again if we're to play that game then really people who don't have student loans shouldn't talk about student loans people who have student loans shouldn't talk about trade schools or whatever or like uh literally someone who's not jewish and not muslim should not talk about Israel-Palestine, and then someone from Israel-Palestine can argue with a European or American Jew, hey, don't talk about it, you're not from here. So we kind of cut, cut people out. We basically uh -huh. limit the conversation to people who right. are specifically affected by an issue. We'll never resolve anything.
Well, I think everyone's impacted. If you want to live in a democratic society, we have to be able to talk to each other. And it all comes back to like what we were discussing earlier, right? With the narrative. Like what is, what is the setup in which you're having the discussion? Are we using, are we transitioning words that have been traditionally, um, uncharged into pejorative terms, um, or not? And like, how are we coming at the conversation? You know, like you and I can talk about a myriad of issues and, you know, although we do have very similar beliefs, um, because there is a level right. of trust between us, we're able to have open and honest conversations That's about right, things yeah. and travel into territory that is uncomfortable. Um, we may not feel that way with other people. And so, you know, to, to Lev's point, I think, you know, with the, it, it does all come down in some sense to the narrative. Um, I, I also think we can ignore you know, in the case of January 6th specifically, that using certain language does incite others. And you have examples on both sides, but you do have examples of leadership um, whom people look to for guidance and, you know, affirmation using these pejorative terms, whether it is like the straight white guys, those labels do incite, Mm -hmm. uh, incite anger on the other side and incite excitement on, on their own. So because we are all coming at this from different perspectives and we have examples of extremism within groups, how, how do we bridge the gap? Where do we, how do we reconcile what's happening so that we don't further incite and further push and further other people to the fringes so that we can have an honest conversation about what's happening and our differences Mm -hmm. and move forward. Yeah. I mean, I believe first of all, um, it's a recognition that motives outside of what you believe to be part of the other side, everything from you can be pro BLM without hating every white person or without wanting to destroy a city that you can be a liberal without wanting communism and without supporting, um, you know, the taking over of like a central part of Portland, for instance, that there is varying views on the other side. And, you know, for liberals, it's to understand that there's a variety of reasons that people vote Trump and that they're not bad people. They're not all racist and they're not all white supremacists and they might have very similar views as you, but their hierarchy of views is at least them to vote for Trump. It's a recognition on both sides about the true face of the other. And I haven't really seen too much of that being a genuine attempt, there being a genuine attempt on this. And part of it is, by the way, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I believe, but I think I'm, I'm pessimistic of this ever happening because of the way democracy works, unfortunately, is that you have to cater to the lowest common denominator. So, for instance, when I listen to the Democratic primaries, uh, I think I only, I, mean, I could be wrong, but I think only Buttigieg and... Um, Klobuchar had a kind of unifying message. I, I walked away f- from the primaries feeling that all the politicians were bashing Trump and Trump supporters uh, to agree a degree where they were treating him like a racist, like a, a white supremacist, his supporters as a white supremacist, uh, because that's how you get votes. You're, I mean, and that's that's kind of evident in a way. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think this also brings in another conversation about, you know, I grew up... Um, it, in predominantly PWS. I don't know what that is. And I grew up, 
uh, predominantly white institutions. And, um, and uh, with mm-hmm. religious conservatism. And there, and I have a decent amount of friends that are on uh, the conservative side and that vote red. And that's, to me, not a problem. I really, I mean, that's democracy. I'm glad I have the opportunity to have civil discourse with these individuals. Um, however, there's a very, very clear difference that we need to recognize between an individual um, who is simply conservative, uh, simply Republican, versus an individual who would support an individual like Trump. And this is why I say that. Um, go ahead, sorry. The difference in rhetoric between John McCain, Mitt Romney, <laughs> vastly different than what I have seen and experienced with individuals who support Trump. Now, I'm not saying that they are all evil. I think that is, um, it's narrow to say that. It's, it's, it's unfair to say that. I think that, you know, to your point, uh, we need to really listen to the other side regardless of how we may feel about it. But there's a difference between having um, political differences versus some people within that base being morally corrupt. Uh, you can be a non-racist and vote for a racist. Well, the only way that I believe that an individual would do that is because they are not directly impacted by the choices or the votes. Uh, this could make. be true, but I'll, I'll give you a historical example here. Um, when Ukraine, uh, when part of Ukraine supported the, the Nazi takeover of Ukraine, um, this part of Ukraine suffered under communism severely, including uh, their own genocide, which led to anywhere from like 1.2 to 3 million people being killed. Um, so essentially, you, mm-hmm. I, always, I always use the example of like, uh, I don't actually believe that America is this extreme, but if you have to choose between Hitler or Stalin, what do you do? Now, a lot of people don't really know the effects of Stalin on, on the Soviet Union, but you know, you're talking more people killed than Hitler. Now, obviously Hitler was, you know, you can say worse and more systematic, but it was, it was I mean, it goes beyond like, uh, beyond words what Stalin did. So you can choose between two evils if you feel like that's what you're, that's what you're dealing with. And um, I can see, reason for voting for someone who you find is a vile racist and yes you're right actually like clearly if you felt that it affected you directly um then you wouldn't vote for that person so for instance as a jew in ukraine um if i was and and you know ukraine suffered under the hands of communism and i hated that and despised it and then the nazis came over and said hey we'll rescue you Mm -hmm. then i'd be like "Uh, no thanks um so that you're right about that um at the same time, I mean, there's a big debate, and I don't know if, if this is what we're getting into now, but like, there's a big debate about a, how racist is he and how racist are his policies. And personally, I don't see him to be particularly racist, and I don't see his policies particularly racist. Um, but we can we can talk about that as well. And at the same time, again, you know, if you, the way that a lot of Trump supporters I know see the Democratic Party um, is a threat to America, mm-hmm. and I can see why. And the way a lot of Democrats see Trump is a threat to America. But um, I see both sides personally as extremely populist, which I just, I think this is disgusting on both sides. And um, populism also means censorship, uh, which I think is, you know, uh, against the values of values of America. So I personally, right. you know, I'm not too worried about what politicians say sometimes because I just don't think it'll come to action because I can separate, you know, someone saying some ridiculously extreme stuff in order to get votes and attention 
um, versus what's actually going to happen because mm -hmm. for whatever naive reasons, I still believe in institutions in America that will prevent actually extreme stuff happening. Um, so, so that's it. But I understand why people who don't actually see that separation and, and are kind of a bit more anxious about things that politicians say, which again, I'm not, um, would see the Democratic Party as as a threat to uh, the US because I, I get it from the things I've heard them say, from the things I've seen the supporters do, to the forced censorship, to things that my family who grew up, who my family grew up in the Soviet Union. So the kind of censorship that they see in America is very, very similar to what they experienced in Russia, you know, and people losing jobs over comments and things like this. Um, so that's a threat to America, in my opinion. Um, and I think a lot of Trump supporters would agree. Uh, but also understand exactly why a lot of, you know, liberals will believe that Trump is a is a threat to America. Um, Actually, on that, real quick, if I can interject, right. um, sure. be, just because we this this is actually something that we've talked about substantially. But do you think that all the deplatforming um, removal of people from Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, do you think that helps or hurts, um, regardless of the commentary, or do you think that there is a line on when somebody should be removed? Um, I think it's, a, it's for me, it's more of a legal question. Uh, I'm big on capitalism. And I think that if I was a businessman, I'll do whatever makes me more money. And if that means that um, getting rid of Trump does that, then I mean, why not? Uh, and I think businesses should have those kind of rights to some extent. At the same time, that does concern me when it comes to like someone, if someone was fired for things they say online, I have some problems with that, whatever. That's another story. The deep platforming thing, um, you know, whether there should be a line drawn um legally i'm not sure it's a very good question because it, it goes into now like what has twitter become has twitter become the platform of the government should it become the platform of the government you know what i mean like things things have changed over time it's kind of like you know people a lot of times on the left say that well the second amendment was written at a time where there were muskets well i can say that free speech and the freedom of press was written at a time when no one could read so um things have to be adjusted accordingly in a way right so um Twitter, in a way, has become, you know, a platform to reach the mass audience, and that's kudos to them and their business strategy. But when you cut off the American government from that, in a way, you have a right. Should you have a right? I don't know. Um, but that's more of a legal question, business question, as far as what it does. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a balance because mm -hmm. on the one hand, you're reaching, it's it becomes that you're reaching um, less of an audience. On the other hand, you're you're validating their fears. And that's what I've seen. I've seen this being like the a huge talk in right wing forums and huge talk in like uh, closed groups that I that I privileged to be part of. Um, and you see that this is for people who previously were not so extreme. This is a point of uh, extremism. Look what they're doing. You know, they're silencing him. Clearly, they wouldn't silence him if he wasn't a threat. Why is he a threat to them? You know, because they know what he, that what he has to say is true. If he if if what he said was nonsense, then why not let him speak and prove it? So like. There's a lot of that, and and by the way, you you see this. Um, I, I mean, I've seen this before, and also with Muslims, like uh, when Muslims started becoming more extreme in Europe as a as a trend, the government started restricting what can be published by them. Like um, in, in throughout Europe, um, you know, uh, like uh, some countries were, and not just Europe, in the Middle East as well, and they were giving like certificates to become an imam that you had to. You couldn't uh, be involved in any kind of extremism and you couldn't have extremist views and everything like that, um, which some Muslims use as fuel for their argument that, look, they're, they're clamping down on us. They're trying to reduce Muslims. Uh, they're trying to eradicate Islam from Europe and so on and so forth. But 
So, that, yeah. That's that's partly why so that's partly that, why I'm bringing all of this up because I, you know, uh, the opposite could be said for recruitment on social media, right? Like as for as much as uh, as much as it exactly. could further push people to the fringe, I guess I I would like to understand and I'm sure some of our listeners would want to understand you know, the, the, the balance of that, if, if you have any insight, because there is a disconnection between government and industries. And I think like that has made it easy for these extremists to use social media platforms to recruit, recruit and communicate. And we see that through, you know, through ISIS, for example. Um, and we certainly have seen that, um, you know, through reports, the DHS and FBI, uh, Department of Justice, in the United States with extremist mm-hmm. groups, um, you know, white supremacy, for example, so, or white supremacist groups. So, yeah. you know, if, if they, if a group is able to use something as a tool or is able to incite, which ultimately leads to, you know, something like an event storming a capital, I, I understand that not everybody was going for that intent. Um, you know, and I, and I do think intent does play some role here, but, you know, yeah, things have to be adjusted. Also, it's being used to recruit. Where where do we draw the line there? And like in, in your view, when you're observing and watching these groups, you know, is it a tool that you see that's predominantly used? And, you know, from that perspective, do you, do you, would you still suggest that silencing I, is not a good idea? Well, I mean, you have to go first off, you're, you're, you're right that uh, when terrorists were banned on, um, you know, in the in the past, when ISIS was like still kind of less of a threat, um, they were all over Twitter. Their supporters were all right. over Twitter. You can message them privately and get involved in the group. It was very very easy. Um, they went more underground, which in some ways people thought was harder. Like uh, people from the intelligence community found it more difficult to find these people, but it was very hard to get into those. You need someone who understands them very very well. Um, you can't just be some journalist. I mean, sometimes you could be, but like right. you need to understand the language. You need to understand their slang. You need to understand their mentality and prove to them that you are a real person who wants to be part of them. Um, so it made it very hard for intelligence communities to find these people, but also meant that there were less people. Um, but at the same time, you know, let's take a step back and remember what we're talking about here. We're not, comp- we, we shouldn't be, and this is kind of my point from like 20 minutes ago, you're comparing the Republican Party and the, literally the president of the USA to an extremist group. And... Well, I'm, not compar- I'm not comparing him to, to ISIS, but I am suggesting that there are, I mean, there are, there are degrees of extremism. There, there are several orders of magnitude that exist on that spectrum. And for those who went, for example, into the Capitol um, with zip ties, wearing military gear, Right. Because there's been there have been over 40 arrests now. Yeah. There was a motive that was premeditated. You don't just go to a rally with handcuffed zip ties because you're going to, you know, swing them around your finger in the air. Like there's a reason that you've gone. And so many of these people have been using social media as channels to communicate and organize. But I think it's unfair. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. So I, that, that's it. I guess I'm just saying, you know, where is the line where we say, okay, um, we need to cut this off. Like we need to cut the head of the monster off because if you're going to a place with the purpose of lynching 
another human being, right? As we've like kind of established with whatever our definitions are Mm -hmm. with extremism, like at, at what point do we say we probably should cut off, you know, communication here? Well, I would or, tell you, or, or do we not? Yeah, I'm open to. I, I, I would say, um, you know, let's take a let's. Uh, if that's the case, you know, Trump isn't the problem. The instigators are a problem. Now, you can say that Trump fueled the fire, Trump fanned the flames, and maybe he did. But um, the real issue, he's he's not the main, you know, person calling people to the streets. There's a lot of others you can find. So ban those. You know, like uh, it's kind of like banning uh the head imam of uh turkey or whatever some other country or iraq uh from twitter if he's let's say um one of the the leaders of iraq for a long time tend to be the heads of uh, shia militant groups uh, yeah. it's one thing from banning them versus banning the people who are actually organizing the violence once this person's not actually a militant and trump and again people can disagree with me but I don't think he's a white supremacist extremist, even if those are his supporters. The same way I don't think Biden is a is a, okay. a BLM or Antifa extremist, even though those people would likely vote for him instead of Trump. Um, so if the issue is actually, and this is, by the way, what a lot of Trump supporters will say, if the issue is actually that, that we're worried about the instigation or incitement or things like that, then ban people are inciting more directly because there's people who are inciting way more directly and recruiting and encouraging way more directly than Trump. And I would say that if we're going to, the one thing I want to say is that if if we're going to, the reason I am, and this does come from my Soviet roots, the reason I'm very extreme when it comes to free speech, and this means for everyone, that the right afforded to BLM, Mm -hmm. the right afforded to anyone that's protesting should be the right that you would afford to your rivals. So this means to me, that and I say this because I do believe in the whole expression of first they came for the gays. I didn't speak up because right, I'm not gay. Then right. they, and I I believe that if you ban Trump now because of this, right. then yeah. once the Republicans are in power, or once you know you have a, once conservatives take over Twitter, which will never happen, obviously, then you can't argue against me banning AOC, me banning um what's her name uh, uh Omar, so I forgot the Palestinian uh Talib. You could not uh, speak mm-hmm. out against me banning Bernie or banning any politician who in any way. Um, uh, offer some mm-hmm. kind of support to BLM. Not because BLM is bad. That's not the point I'm trying to make. We can't really define what percentage of the rioters in, uh, on January 6th were violent or extremists or whatever. But the point is, if, if, if uh, we're saying we should cut off the head, um, then I would say, okay, fine, then cut off all the Democratic heads too. Would we do the same to Biden? And I do think um, all you're doing is justifying for the extremists, why they're extreme, and that's going to make, even though there's less of them, if they can't be recruited on Twitter, there's going to be stronger ones, and you're not going to find them as easily, and they're mm-hmm. going to organize better. But I also think just from a balanced perspective, then I'll ask the question back, like, where do we draw the line? At what point do we call off a democratic leader? And the last point, like I said earlier, is he's not the problem. You know, it's kind of nonsense to, to cut him off. He's annoying, but like, then cut off the people who are actually recruiting. I have friends who literally done way more for the far-right cause um, than Trump ever could, in a way, you know what I mean, just by directly bringing people in. So I understand what you're saying as far as trajectory. I want to make sure that I'm understanding and that we make it clear for our listeners that yeah, you're suggesting pretty much extremist language or incite- inciting language, as opposed to just generally banning Republicans and Democrats for simply being Democrat or Republican. Um, uh, sort of, but even that, I w- even then, to be honest with you, as this far is as why trajectory. again, like, personally, like. Uh, I would I would also be opposed to that to some extent. Like there has to be a very 
direct linear line between uh, words and action. And the reason I say that is because a lot of things can be a lot of political opinions Got it. in countries that have greater censorship will be considered inciting language. Like me, pa uh, Palestinian protest call, and I'm sure you guys have heard it from yeah. the river to the sea, Palestine will be free means kill all the Jews in Israel. And I don't support banning that. Not that, I mean, I support banning killing the Jews, but I don't support banning the call of river to sea, Palestine will be free because that's their call. <laughs> that's their protest call. But that literally means what? It means end Israel, end the Jews in Israel. So if, if we were to say that we have to bite, uh, ban incitement language, insightful language, then who's to define insightful language? I don't want anyone to define it because it could, it's so easy to, to loosely define it. So if I'm in power, I say, yeah, that's a call against Jews, ban all the pro-Palestinians or anything. Like you might be okay with someone saying uh, Jews will not replace us in Virginia. That was said is insightful language. It says mm -hmm. basically kill the Jews, which, you know, personally impacts me. But at the same time, a lot of the calls that I heard in BLM could also be considered insightful during the protests. And like, at what like, are you comfortable with banning one if it means that when I'm in power or someone from the right is in power, they'll ban you? I'd rather not have that. I don't, I don't want anyone to have the right to define what's insightful. Okay. So, um, you know, also just to high level, these uh, social media platforms are also private. So if you violate right. the terms of service or terms of use, you can be banned. I imagine, I mean, I, I don't know yeah. because I had no interest in downloading Parler, <laughs> but if I did, um, I imagine if I had extreme leftist views and I was talking about zip tying or if I were to, you know, um, say really aggressive extremist things about uh people on the right politicians or not i hope that i would be banned simply because that's that's destructive and that's dangerous i imagine that i would be not only because it's not on the level of uh group think as individuals uh, on parlor potentially not saying that everyone on parlor um you know agrees with the proud boys or agrees with what happened on the capitol right. at all i'm just you know just for reference objectively that's bad and, um, you know, again, I see what you're saying about freedom of speech, but that doesn't necessarily apply to private companies. You know, if I were to walk into my office building and say really, you know, horrible things about people I work with, um, yeah. I, you know, I could get fired for that. And they are a private company and they are allowed to take those actions. Um, and, you know, these private companies do not solely operate in the U.S. Um, they are, you know, across spectrum and they do reserve that oh, yeah. right. right. So, you know, are we talking about something larger than that? I mean, if I think that's potentially one of the main reasons I know people were still upset that it took this long to um, to ban uh, Donald Trump from these platforms. But, you know, given what you're saying, I can. Well, has, I, can has he, I, mean, I haven't read all his tweets, but um, has he actually said anything that can be. Listen, if it's a private company, technically they can ban him simply for being a Republican. And if, if we're OK with that, then we're OK with that. There's a few questions. A, did he actually say anything that you can say was a call for violence, like direct call for violence, rather than just, you know, inspiring the type of people who cause violence, which is two very different things. The other question is, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. If they no, have that ahead. right and we're OK with them exercising their right as, as they please, then. In theory, then you're okay with them when I could be too, with just banning someone simply for having an opinion, even if it's peaceful opinion. And the third thing, and this goes back to this is a very big discussion mm -hmm. in, in policy now in general about what is what are these companies that basically surpass the government as far as power goes, um, where you know the government's website 
and the government all it has is a website right like all the only way they can reach people is through through website that's the only thing they have that's government owned twitter's not government owned facebook's not government owned no newspaper is government owned as far as i'm aware so you know there's the legal question yeah. uh just the bigger question you know what is twitter now like should they still be allowed to be just a private company or should they have some kind of responsibility and obviously there's a lot of lines you have to cross it's a it's an issue because again they're they're that powerful you know how do we balance between protecting a private business in a country that's extremely capitalist like america and and also you know ensuring that uh, mm -hmm. a company like twitter doesn't become more powerful than the than the government because essentially as people as a citizenship we only get our information from private companies twitter and facebook and newspapers and if they have the right to manipulate information which essentially is what they can do um, that that's a that's a huge threat to democracy in theory once that you once you cross a certain threshold then there will be a counter um, platform made for those who are uh, you know disenfranchised or for those who are unhappy but it'll, it'll, it'll you know twitter's too powerful right, to allow right. for for something like that to come up and be such a huge competitor so essentially we have to ask ourselves a different question like in addition to do they have the right legally they probably do should they do it in my well, opinion no yeah go ahead no and, and like i think that like the caveat to that is that the president does have another option of communication and that's through the white house uh, press corps right like he can if he wants at any time call a news briefing and you know the the press corps will go to the white house sit down and listen to him and presumably then report on it and if they can't um, report on it because twitter banned them and if you can't rec well, report on it because like uh, all the news channels banned them if like there's a general media conglomerate not conglomerate but like a decision in media hey we're gonna ban everything that trump says because we hate him then it's the same problem well then parlor right there there will be something else that that will come up so that people who um support that type of rhetoric they would have that that would be created but i mean thankfully we're not there yet to the point where they're banning but you have to see yeah, it in the threads sure, I, I just want to make sure um, that we're reflecting all the facts it's like i 100 percent agree with you lev that it, there is like a dangerous line and it's a kind of a slippery slope on what information gets reported what doesn't get reported where do we what responsibilities do private companies have, which at this point is really none. They have zero responsibility. Right. Um, their terms are their terms. And like, I, I uh, am in full support of evaluating, you know, I don't have the answers. I am not even close to being well-versed in an area in this area where I can have a reasonable discussion about it, but I'm in full support of having a conversation, which looks at, you know, that broader conversation, but, um, you know, President Trump doesn't just have Twitter. He does have the entire press corps at his disposal, and he's used mm -hmm. that many times. So, I mean, this is true, yeah. To get back to who's responsible, what is incitement, who defines incitement, which I think is a phenomenal point to really, you know, keep in mind yeah. um, as we try to uphold our democracy. <laughs> Um, you know, but you, you did ask an important question uh, earlier about, um, you know, was there a specific tweet or post from Donald Trump that incited or invited violence? Um, and um, I'm going to read this out from uh, Donald Trump's now deactivated Twitter account. Um, 
Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they were asked to previously certify, USA demands the truth, end quote. This reminds me when Michael Cohen was giving his congressional testimony. And one of the things that he said, which stuck with me, and I think a lot of other people, was he said, you know, Donald Trump doesn't speak um, in direct terms about what he would like done. Um, it's, it's suggested. There's an assumption that you make with how he speaks. And I'm reminded of that when that tweet was put out. Because no, he did not direct, he did not explicitly state that he wanted violence. He did not explicitly state that he wanted people to storm the Capitol. He did not explicitly state that he wanted anybody to rip out the panic button from Representative Ayanna Presley's office. He did not explicitly state any of these things. He didn't say, we want you, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't make those statements. Um, number one, because he's um, not a fool, <laughs> you know, he, you, you can't say those things um, in plain terms, but there is that recognition of dog whistles. And it's not just right. Donald Trump who does dog whistles, right? It's every politician from, uh, you know, across the political spectrum that do have very specific uh, dog whistles, which are very explicit to their base, the base that they serve, um, both left and both right. There can be an argument on both sides. No, he did not explicitly state violence. In that sense, has he expressed uh, and supported violence previously? Of course, at his at his rallies, when there was a heckler in the crowd, and he said uh, we should all just you know, when he was yeah. directing violence aimed at that one specific individual. So it's not outside of his character to make those to say those things. And you know, later on, yeah. he said, "I was just joking," um, which those are jokes that you cannot make when you have when you hold the highest office jokes or not right regardless of whether or not we can all agree it was a joke or it wasn't um they there we have to be very careful about the words we use because i believe um you or nina had said this earlier it, words matter we can't absolve anybody from that so i think when we're discussing accountability as far as the insurrection now that we've you know sort of discussed a lot of those um you know framing what insurrection is what terrorism is what extremism is was this event an extremist Trump. Yeah, uh, event. Really caution against the idea of dog whistles because it's it's really easy to call anything a dog whistle. Uh, if I put an American flag outside my house, someone could say it's a dog whistle. Like again, it, it goes back to defining what what is. Um, That's like we're, true. We're defining uh, incitement. How do you define that? And the same thing. What he said to me when you read that to me, I didn't see anything calling for violence and. Um, I don't necessarily believe it's a dog whistle. I don't think he intended to encourage people to violence in any way. That's my belief. Whether I'm right or wrong is beyond the point. It's the fact that there is no one who can really determine when that happens or not. In the same way, again, like the way I exercise, and I, I've done this my ever since I don't know I had the capacity to do so, is to ask, would it be okay if they did this to my side? So the way what I would ask for anyone who believes that that was a dog whistle is when a Democratic politician said something to the effect of about uh, protests like BLM protests saying, when people are upset, they're gonna riot. That's a dog whistle to kill white people. It's not, obviously, I don't believe mm -hmm. that. But it's a dog whistle to encourage um, the acts that happened on those riots, saying it's okay, I'm cool with that. If we make it subjective, um, ask yourself, would you be okay if someone had, if I had the right, or if any Trump supporter had the right to determine um, which statements by a Democrat were incitement to violence? And I don't think you'd be okay with that. So for me, I'm not okay with anyone having the right to determine what was a dog whistle, what wasn't. Because some of the things that I've heard myself say that people said, that's a dog whistle. I'm like, 
man, I'm an independent. Like, no, it's not. I know what I'm saying. I know, I know it wasn't a dog whistle. So, so I see what you're saying. Um, and I, you know, with, with this dog whistle and that can be said on both sides because a lot of people in this country feel unheard and they feel muted. And one of the best ways for your voice to be heard is to go out into the streets and to say, this is wrong. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. I'm being, you know, I'm being treated this way by these elected representatives, by the cops, by my neighbors, whoever. To your point about defining incitement and dog whistles, I think is is an important point because you're right, it is subjective. Regardless yeah. of who's defining it, it's objectively going to be subjective, regardless of whether or not you agree with how or agree with why, the reason why people are out on the streets doing this um, on either side, the one overlapping reason yeah. is because they feel unheard or they feel as if their 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 identity or their beliefs are being yeah, are, are trying to be erased or their lives are trying to be erased i don't know if you actually were to go by percentages what percentage of the um of i forgot what the actual save america or whatever it's called protest was um what percentage of them had done anything that can be seen mm -hmm. as or construed as kidnapping attempt or attempted murder or attempted assault it's it's not me trying to paint one as bad and the other one is bad i just want to i think both sides need to like look and see we're not too different ultimately you know what i mean um there were right um people on both sides were upset about the way things turned out there's people who were sympathetic towards the violence there are people who were violent on all sides it's it's that's and that's the case in almost any extremist context i've seen in my life Okay. Are you familiar with any nonviolent extremist groups? Maybe on the tipping point, maybe they haven't taken action yet, but there's like chatter or... You know, I can't say for sure. It's like, it's very kind of hazy to me, but like I have heard of white supremacists in America who support like a white America, like America where there's separation between blacks and whites and different like zones who haven't supported using violence for it. Mm -hmm. um, but when asked... Uh, in an interview, and I think this might have even been on Vice, as much as I don't really like Vice, I think they, it was on them, where they said, uh, they asked the guy, okay, but what if we choose not to leave? Say, well, you know, in that case, if you refuse the orders, then there will be ways. So, like, there are people who believe that um, you can get the result that you want through nonviolent actions, um, even their extreme results. Actually, you know what, there are, I guess you can think of some examples, yeah, like, okay. let's say political parties in Europe that are far right, um, who have called for extremist things. And by extremists, I don't mean violent, but this is like a different definition of extremism, but an ideology or, you know, ultimately, how do you do that? They're not leaving because you ask politely. So what you're essentially saying is once you have enough support politically to pass this law, then there's going to be forceful means to do it. But those means, by the, by the way, might not even be violent. Mm, you, can, you can just tell someone, hey, you're out of here. We took your citizenship away, get out. And that's not necessarily violent, but I would still call that a bit extreme. And I joke when I say a bit. So if the House impeaches Donald Trump uh, on a charge of incitement or insurrection in reference to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, do you believe that it's justified? I don't know the law well enough, and I don't know what, how they define inciting it and everything like that. Um, personally, from what I've seen, if like, just my general, like, linguistic right. understanding of incitement i think if the closest mm -hmm. evidence of him inciting it was what you read to me from twitter then absolutely not i don't think he incited anything um so i think it would be unjustified but i don't know the law 
I think, I think, yeah, just for um, some, some context outside of that, there, there have been, and again, reports that are fuzzy. There's a lot of information that many of us still don't know. Our bodies are still investigating things, right. but um, allegedly at the rally, when he spoke to people, um, many of the supporters are now citing his comments um, as having been divisive and directly go to the Capitol now. Like he, he used very specific language at the rally. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, what, how they're, how they're legally going to argue the merits of that. I, I would assume that using um, people who were at the, at the rally, Save America rally, when he spoke directly to the crowd, I would guess that's what they're going to be using. Well, I guess for me, I still think that uh, basically getting someone charged for using insightful language has to be actually very insightful language, like very direct, because I do feel that there's a lot of things that could be taken as, no, I meant that metaphorically. I'll give you an example, like just uh, all the time in the Middle East, our neighbors say about Israel that we're going to march on Jerusalem and take Israel or take Palestine back for the Palestinians. You see this all the time. That's incitement in a way, but they're not actually going to do that. I mean, we've been saying this for decades. And if we actually believe that that's a real incitement, then that's, in my opinion, a cause for uh, preemptive action. Obviously, I don't call for that because I don't believe the words are meaningful today. So I think saying something, guys, let's march to, if Biden were to say, guys, let's march to D.C. and let's take our country back. Like, and if someone chooses to take that violently, that's not his fault. And I don't, I don't consider that incitement. I think incitement for the reasons that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, incitement needs to be very direct incitement. And um, you, you, we can't make it subjective um, because that's a threat to America if you just make that too subjective of a decision. I, I respect that. Thank you. Do you think that we will and learn from this? I don't, I don't think we'll learn from it. And I, I, I don't Literally think the world is, I don't think America is built for learning um, from these things. I don't think the world is built for learning from it, especially now because of, like I said, like the way that the news that my friends take um, just from you know, the algorithms that are meant for them, that's just, you know, business on the part of Facebook or whoever else. And they see things very differently than me. And I see things very differently from them. Um, I feel that, and this goes back to my years of research that mm-hmm. just to answer a very basic question takes, um, for me, like I, I was asked to answer some question about a politician in the Middle East. And that took me um, a whole month of dedicated research to answer that question and to get through all the fake news or the biased news and all the incorrect data and mm-hmm. sifting through how is that data collected? Was it, was it good or not? People aren't going to do that. They read a headline and they, People literally read headlines, and there's a, I'm sure you guys have seen that, and that's yes. where they get the information from. And those are from algorithms that lead them to those headlines. So no, I don't think people are going to of read course. outside of their world. B, I don't think people want to learn, because America especially, I, I said this to you guys uh, off, offline before about the, my, what I've learned from living in Israel as a country with a parliamentary democracy, which has issues, of course. Uh, parliamentary democracies are less stable than um, the American system. Um, in America, you people want mm. to put themselves in boxes in America. And I've seen this all over the place. I've seen it um, even, quite frankly, just on dating apps. Like in Israel, you'll never see right. someone talk about their political position on dating apps. It's not interesting because that's not how you define yourself. But in America, it's like if you vote Trump, swipe left. If you vote uh, or, you know, Biden forever. or And you, you see a lot of it. And Americans in general love putting themselves <laughs> in boxes. I often get asked yeah. when I'm in America, like, 
are you a blank is? Are you a that is? I'm like, I don't define myself by that. And in Israel, people don't either. And part of the reason when you have a parliamentary democracy is that parties get created every other week. And they get created because of a split between the leader of one party and his deputy who disagree over one minor policy issue. What that means is that you have, I can list you five parties in Israel that have 60% the same position on, on basically the same position on 60% of the issues. In, in America, that kind of development doesn't happen. So people box themselves in to their party and because you get attacked and I, as an independent um, who supports both sides and different issues, I feel, and I'm cool with it, that's just my nature. I don't need to be part of any group. I don't want to, I like being independent. I feel attacked on both sides just by saying one position. You know what I mean? It, I, and um, it's uncomfortable for most people I know to always feel kind of like they're being attacked. You know, all you have to say is, ah, I think you need stricter gun restrictions. I go, oh, so you're like a cuck uh, Democrat or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, or, you, or, you know, if you say, well, I think, you know, you should, the Second Amendment should be respected. Oh, so you think that all black people should be killed. Don't you understand what you're doing? You don't understand you're a straight white male, whatever. I face this as an independent, and I'm not saying that to yeah. give myself any credit. I'm just saying that mo- most people don't like that because it's, 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 you have to enjoy confrontation. You have to enjoy being an outsider or at least be comfortable in it. So because of that, when you're in these groups, and I'm part of uh, far left groups and part of far right groups, at least on Facebook, once you challenge their opinions, that everyone else is just like uh, they're in a little echo chamber, and everyone's like, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and totally, um, you know, they're they're trying to take the elections from us, whatever." As soon as you say, "Well, guys, actually, that evidence is kind of bullshit," yeah, even if everything else you align with them on, they're gonna attack you. So because of that, people just sit down and shut up because they don't want to be alienated from um, from their from the others. And I think because of that, uh, I think the future is quite bleak, and I think um, people we're not gonna learn from this in any single way. And just, sorry, one more comment to add to that. I saw when uh, Biden won, and I, I saw after Trump won that no one learned how Trump uh, won. And as soon as he won, I saw all my liberal friends being like, it's a bunch of those middle American knuckle-dragging rejects, you know, and things like that. And I've heard that from educated people, and I've heard it from journalists I know. And I'm like, that's the problem. You are the reason that he won. It's because people like you speak about the rest of America like that, because you think that someone from the Midwest who voted for Trump is some truck driving redneck. And by the way, even if he is a truck driving redneck, those are still good people. There's nothing wrong with rednecks. There's nothing wrong with the working uh, rural American. But because America is, uh, uh, all I'm trying to say right now, and I think I went on a unnecessary tangent, is that these, uh, we, I saw back then that we didn't learn because immediately after his victory that so many people were upset with, they did the exact same thing that got Trump to win. And I saw that now when Biden won, I saw people saying, guys, what can we learn from this? And I saw an article, I think on Washington Post or something like that, that was basically comparing all the Trump supporters to to Nazis. And basically what he was saying is we need to learn from post-World War II Germany, how the country reconciled. And he referenced Nazis, the whole entire article. I'm like, you're literally calling half my family and half my friends Nazis. And that makes me want to never want your party to win. And I think that in and of itself is evident that even when they won, that they couldn't learn their lesson from uh, the past four years. And uh, so, no, I'm very pessimistic. And that's also why I believe that we need to do everything to protect, uh, you know, the freedom of speech and like uh, the institutions of America, because um, essentially I think we're in danger. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, I, I, well, kind of different reasons mirror the same sentiment. I do. Do I think we're going to learn? No, but I don't think we're going to learn because I don't think people have all that much awareness or care. I think, uh, to, to learn about outside perspectives, like just to touch a little bit on that echo chamber thing, you know, I do think it's a lot more comfortable to have your own opinions and views reinforced unless you're you're actively seeking new versions of information and i you know that's why we're starting this podcast right because we right we notice that in in policy development and in speaking in our own circles and you know we we have our own deeply rooted you know and I'll, i guess i'll just speak for myself i have my own deeply rooted beliefs um and i enjoy them being challenged you know i'm um, right. So I, you know, I, I don't have faith because I don't, I, I would agree that I don't think most people like that. And again, not to pat myself on the back, I just think it's natural human behavior to not want to be in confrontation constantly. And in American yeah. politics, that is the name of the game. We have, I think you're right. We have two parties. There is no other option. <laughs> so you are forced to box yourself into one or the other you know i think it's the same in some some respects with religion right like Mm -hmm. i don't necessarily agree with every part of my religious faith but i identify with the larger religion so you know i i i have to be careful to check myself as well when people challenge that yeah um you know i yeah. And I, I just don't think we as a society are there yet. And I think also there's a lot of anger where we're a relatively new country still. And there's a lot of anger about the beginnings of our country. And I think um, in general, there's just a lot of anger about differences. So until we can move past that, um, I, whether that's through accountability measures or you know, opening up conversation, I, both of which I'm not sure I see. Um, I, I don't think that we are going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. I agree with the both of you, um, simply because we had how many centuries to learn from a lot of our mistakes and how many decades of certain people in office to correct it. Um, yeah, it's kind of like that, that, far that like added so uh, history repeats itself. Sentiments. And it does over um, and over and over and over again. We'll see, but you know, I think it'll be a lot of the same old, same old, regardless of who's in power. So Lev, thank you so much for your time. We we truly appreciate it. It was it's a much needed conversation uh, to have and to really leverage, you know, not only your expertise, but to really use your personal uh, political position. And I think that's a very important perspective to have as somebody who is in the middle, because we hear so much from the left and so much from the right. And a lot of times that can be and is, um, you know, exceptionally biased uh, information, how we receive it. So we really appreciate you lending your time to us. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I I think I think it's great. I, you know, even if I'm pessimistic uh, about, you know, fixing America and so on and so forth, I think uh, what you guys are doing great. And I do think it will have an impact. And uh, I'm really happy to to have been invited to this and, uh, you know, just really enjoy talking to you guys. Thank you so much, love. Yeah, thank you, guys. 
And thank you for listening to the Politigal podcast with your hosts, Nina Belforte and Mary Mukira. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the intersection of Trump politics and extremism. Be sure to subscribe to our channel and follow us on social media at Politigals underscore, where we will continue discussing democracy in the United States. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.